Welcome to New Books in British Studies. I'm your host, Christina Fryer. Today we're speaking with Kenetta Hammond-Perry, author of the new book, London is the Place for Me, Black Britons, Citizenship, and the Politics of Race, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. London is the Place for Me is a... Welcome to New Books in British Studies. I'm your host, Christina Fryer. Today we're speaking with Kenetta Hammond-Perry, author of the new book, London is the Place for Me, Black Britons, Citizenship, and the Politics of Race, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. London is the Place for Me is a political history of post-war Caribbean migration to Britain between the late 1940s and the early 1960s. Perry is particularly interested in the politics of claim-making, as practiced by Black Caribbean migrants, who arrived in London as British citizens claiming their right to live and work in the metropole. For them, migration itself was a practice of citizenship. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in British Studies. I'm your host, Christina Fryer, and today I'm here with Kenetta Hammond-Perry, author of the very new book, so new it is crispy, these pages, uh, London is the Place for Me. Um, I should say before we even start this interview, uh, this particular book is very personal to me uh, since uh, my mother and my grandparents uh, were part of the phenomenon that we'll be talking about. So I am very excited, Kaneta, uh to be speaking uh, with you today. So welcome to New Books in British Studies. Thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, we'll start with the general questions that we always ask here. Um, what led you to become a historian? Well, um, I I think I was always interested in history. I started um, my undergraduate work at North Carolina Central, and I thought I was going to law school um, and sort of ended up in history and sort of, uh, you know, still thinking about law school. But that department in particular just has um, a long history of really um, getting students to think seriously about becoming professional historians. So, we were sort of, um, I was sort of socialized in a history department um, as an undergraduate that took students to conferences, sort of exposed them to the research side of um, of being an academic um, during that, that uh, period. And then I also had um, the opportunity to be a part of what at the time was called the Minority Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship Program at UNC Chapel Hill. And that was just really formative in terms of um, you know, ha- giving me a research experience to really sort of, um, you know, uh, develop my chops as a historian um, as an undergraduate. And, and it was sort of that that kind of um, cemented the idea of going on to graduate school and pursuing a Ph.D. in history. So I, I sort of always was interested um, in, in history and in particular sort of um, the, the sort of classic era of the civil rights movement and um, sort of sort of took that on and was really nurtured in an undergraduate department that kind of um, allowed me to think about, you know, what it would mean to do that um, professionally and, and, and to really go into a career in academia. So then if you were uh, so interested in the civil rights movement in particular, how did you come to this project, which is all about um, not the U.S. civil rights movement, but a, 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 about almost a, a contemporaneous movement um, in Britain? How'd you, how'd you end up there? 
it's really um, that kind of interest that, that started uh, the project. I went to graduate school really thinking that I was going to do work um, primarily in African-American women's history and sort of looking at the 1950s, 1960s, looking at grassroots organizers. And I went to graduate school at Michigan State in a comparative black history program. And one of the seminars that I took um, with my dissertation advisor, Darlene Clark Hine, um, was a, this comparative black history seminar where you essentially the, the, the key project, um, at the end of the semester was all about, um, putting together a project where you were sort of looking at, um, blackness and issues around, uh, race and black identities here and there. And so my, the, the, the project really came from this question of sort of, trying to, you know, ask about like, well, what was it like uh, for black people in Britain during the 1950s and 1960s, an era I was already interested in, in terms of, of um, black freedom struggles in the, in the U.S. And it was really sort of, um, you know, finding these incidents of uh, the, the sort of race riots, news of race riots that I write about in the book and sort of also um, really sort of finding the international reverberations of um, African-American freedom struggles and sort of the iconography of the civil rights movement in this context that kind of um, really spurred me to, to kind of stay there and to see what was going on and to figure out, okay, well, what is this sort of, you know, what is constituting black community there? And then, you know, sort of uh, really finding um, these connections between uh, struggles in the U.S. and sort of understanding on uh, those connections that kind of kept me um, invested in that project. And so I kind of s- switched gears and, and stayed um, in the U.K. But, you know, I, it definitely was this kind of very U.S. oriented question that that led me to the U.K. That's fascinating. So um, what's come out of this uh, interest that you developed in, in that graduate seminar is a political history of the first two decades of mass migration, and I'm using the term migration very specifically as opposed to immigration. Um, so the first two decades of mass migration of colonial subjects or uh, pro- probably better known as Commonwealth citizens to Britain, and this began in 1948. Um, now, this is a ter- this is territory that has been um, semi-well covered by historians, but you were bringing a different approach uh, to this particular time period. Um, can you tell us what your uh, approach is and why you felt it was important to come at this study in this fashion? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the central points that I wanted to try to um, do in terms of, um, you know, making an intervention in the scholarship that, and there is sort of a rich scholarship that um, has evolved um, that sort of looked at questions of race, uh, migration, and oftentimes really immigration and and citizenship, um, particularly from the perspective of policymakers and and sort of looked at, at the politics surrounding those three um, those three concepts, um, particularly in the moment that I'm looking at um, from the perspective of policymakers. And so one of the, the key things that I wanted to do is to really, you know, think about um, this history and think about the politics of race and citizenship from the perspective of those who were quite often the, the objects of scrutiny uh, or, or the, 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 uh, the uh, objects of, of anxiety um, in terms of how policymakers were thinking about things. So I really wanted to, to create a narrative that really pivoted on the experiences of Afro-Caribbean migrants. Um, and so as a condition of that and really sort of shifting the lens, 
um, it became impossible not to tell this story uh, in terms of its relationship to sort of a larger transnational moment around race politics that was sort of connecting um, the, the politics of race as viewed from the perspective of Afro-Caribbean migrants to other black freedom struggles, particularly in the United States, in um, in South Africa, uh, to decolonization movements um, in the Caribbean um, and in parts of Asia during uh, the 19, uh, late 1940s up through the early 1960s. So it was really um, by necessity that the story had to become this story that was um, bigger than a story that could be contained within the British Isles or could be that, you know, wasn't just a domestic story when you kind of put, um, you know, uh, Afro-Caribbean migrants and their activism at the center of, of scholarly investigation. And so that, um, you know, really trying to focus on um, Afro-Caribbean migrants and the politics that they are engendering in this moment and really trying to understand that that moment um, both in terms of a, a longer history of empire, but also in terms of a, of a post-war story about transnational race politics. Is, um, those are sort of, I think, the, the I'm hoping the greatest interventions in the scholarship that I hope the project's making. And certainly I think the the use of a, of a context of diaspora politics and transnational race politics uh, comes across very clearly, and we will get back to that as, as, as we proceed. Um, so you open with the Empire Windrush, um, and you also open with uh, the the with London is the place for me, which is a calypso song um, that uh, furnishes the title for uh, the text. Uh, for listeners who might not know, can you tell us about what what the Empire Windrush uh, was, why it's so significant in the literature, um, and then we can pivot to uh, to Lord Kitchener and London is the place for me. Well, the Empire Windrush was um, sort of this this very iconic arrival of, um, you know, the Empire Windrush quite literally was a, a warship, a battleship, um, and it um, was the ship that sort of uh, gets a lot of media attention in particular because of its arrival uh, in June of 1948, and um it brings, um, you know, over 500 uh, Afro-Caribbean migrants, the number that sort of oftentimes um, <clears throat> stated over and over again is 492. But actually, if you sort of look at the uh, the ship's manifest, the numbers were actually um, higher than that. And it also wasn't just a ship that contained uh, or that um, was bringing uh, Afro-Caribbean migrants, but it also contained Polish migrants. I also found that uh, British heiress Nancy Kennard was aboard the Empire Windrush, who's a sort of, you know, interesting figure in her own right, particularly in relation to a lot of the issues that are that are central, uh, central to the project. So, um, you know, but I think what's, uh, you know, has become historically significant about um, or the way that it's been talked about in terms of its historical significance, I think, um, revolved around the media attention that it got, um, and particularly, um, you know, that iconic performance that Lord Kitchener gives of London is the place for me and the ways in which that particular arrival um, creates a type of, of news story about the arrival of um, migrants from the Caribbean, um, and in particular, uh, male migrants from the Caribbean. And, and that in some ways sort of um, that news story um, that sort of set in motion with um, with the visuals that come along with, um, you know, having that arrival being recorded at Tilbury Docks and being sort of presented as part of this um, this media narrative becomes sort of the ways in which um, it becomes kind of the launching pad 
um, by which historians had, had sort of talked about um, the significance of Afro-Caribbean migration in the post-World War II period. So in many ways, you know, it is um, popularly very significant um, in terms of, um, you know, connecting uh, the story of Afro-Caribbean migration in following World War II to sort of a larger um, development of, of post-colonial Black Britain. So it's it's been very significant um, in that regard. So I, I wanted to return to it, but sort of think about it differently in the book. And you mentioned that, um, that there are a number of different ways that the Windrush has been, um, has been described in, in, in the literature. Can you walk us through some of those? Well, um, in particular, I think probably the, the, the overarching way that it's, um, been described is sort of, um, this kind of point of origin, this point of origin for sort of, sort of understanding contemporary Black Britain, um, and, and sort of, um, understanding Afro-Caribbean, um, centering Afro-Caribbean, uh, Afro-Caribbean migration, um, post-World War II Afro-Caribbean migration. As a part of that, um, it's also sort of um, and, and sort of as part of that origin story, it kind of um, takes us away from having a sense that there were, um, in fact, um, for generations settled black communities um, in the UK that that sort of form um, our sense of, of, of what we can imagine um, black Britain's multiple histories to be. Um, and so, you know, that's that's sort of one of the biggest um I think issues that that um, that scholars have taken, I think, uh, you know, there's definitely been a critique of that. But just that it is this this sort of point um, of origin has been sort of the biggest um, piece that in terms of understanding that Windrush moment, that it is the moment, this sort of originary moment where we should begin to talk about Afro-Caribbean migration and, and more significantly to talk about um, uh, contemporary Black Britain. So um, let's briefly t- uh, chat about London is the place for me, the, uh, the, the Calypso song, because you use this as a way to talk about um, how Afro-Caribbean migrants saw themselves as belonging in, in, in Britain, in London, in, in this particular song, but also in Britain more broadly, that they belonged there um, and that they were basically owed a place there. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, one of the things I definitely wanted to do in terms of trying to, to rethink the Windrush moment and, and really think about it as um, in relation to uh, the politics of that moment is to really think about London is the place for me, not just um, as as a as a performance that was something that made news or to help uh, script a, a type of news story about um the arrival of Afro-Caribbean migrants, but to really think about that as a moment of claim making and sort of really thinking about um, the use of, of Calypso in particular um, as a, as a, you know, in the politics surrounding Calypso as a, as a type of musical genre and its meaning um, historically within the context of empire in the Caribbean, um, but also just um, the words themselves and, and the fact that, you know, Lord Kitchener arrives with this sense. That's a huge piece of, that he arrives with this sense of being able to make this claim that London could be the place for him. London could be this place where he and and um, and and, you know, likely his his uh, fellow Windrush compatriots from the Caribbean could be this place where he could belong and that it doesn't take, you know, uh, literally being in the British Isles or actually, you know, going through the process of settlement, but they can arrive making this this claim. And so um, 
it's precisely not only the claim itself um, and thinking about that um, as, as sort of a claim on belonging, a claim of, of, of being a part of a type of imperial body politic. But also I think the fact that, again, that he arrives with this claim and that sort of points us back to sort of thinking about, well, how then, you know, is he able to sort of already arrive in the UK with this sense that this is a place that he could belong rightfully um, and so that's where, you know, in my view, um, it opens us up to having to sort of necessitate a conversation about, um, well, you know, again, how do people arrive with this sense of already being able to make this claim? It's not a claim that's forged in the context of being in Britain, but it's, it's a claim that's already there before they arrive. And so that's sort of what took me back um, to trying to sort of think about the genealogies of those claim within those claims within the context of the imperial post-emancipation Caribbean. So this actually takes a, is a perfect transition into uh, into chapter one. Um, and as you've uh, been describing, one of the key arguments of the book is that migration itself was a form of claim making. Um, and in particular, the insistence that colonial subjects were British citizens. Um, and part of that, the last part of that, uh, the, the, the fact that they were British citizens comes up in the 20th century. Um, but in the, in chapter one, you're tracing these claims back to the post emancipation period, um, which happens to be one of my favorite periods in, in Caribbean history. Um, so can you explain, uh, or, or walk us through the arguments that you're making in chapter one, um, and what you actually found in the post emancipation period about the kinds of claims, um, that free people were beginning to make? I definitely would like to say, you know, I don't think that that chapter one is is meant to be sort of an exhaustive uh, treatment of of these this issue of claim making. I think what I really wanted to do in the um, in that first chapter was to again just to sort of present um, to sort of try to stitch together a narrative that that sort of allows us uh, to connect um, these discourses around rights, these discourses of um, uh, British identifications that that um, sort of see. Uh, don't see blackness, um, ideas about blackness, ideas about coloniality, ideas about um, um, about Britishness being these sort of mutually exclusive categories, mm-hmm. but that they are, are, are these categories that can be simultaneously held together and can be these categories that when held simultaneously together can sort of create this kind of um, uh, uh, structure to... Um, to, to advocate for rights, structure to, to make claims upon rights um, within um, the, the empire and within the context of, um, of notions of citizenship. So part of what I wanted to do in that chapter was, again, to, to, um, to both see how people of African descent were sort of doing that as part of the very process by which they're making claims about freedom, they're making claims about subjecthood well before um, we see the arrival of Afro-Caribbean migrants um, in more significant numbers in the post-World War II period. So it's really to try to give um, an imperial b- backdrop for sort of understanding um, notions of what, you know, become more clear as, as notions of, of Black Britishness in, in the metropole in the post-World War II period, but to really kind of see them historically as, as this is essentially something that's, that's not new. This is something that people have arrived with a sense that um, these things are not uh, incongruent with one another, ideas about Blackness and ideas about Britishness. Um, and so in that chapter, um, you know, part of what I, I really try to do is to begin by sort of just thinking about um, the the early history of abolitionism and the ways in which abolition 
as a process, as a historical process, creates um, these types of discourses of belonging that are all about sort of trying to figure out the place of the formerly enslaved within the context of empire. Right. Uh, and that's something that's being done um, by, you know, folks who are involved in formal anti-slavery societies, as well as sort of uh, insurgents in, in Demerara in, in, in 1823, who are also making claims about their rights and making claims about what it what the meaning of freedom will be and that it will confer this sense of rights and this sense of belonging within the context of imperial subjecthood. And so I sort of begin there and try to, um, to sort of think uh, through the, the, the uh, you know, the, 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 the early uh, years of abolition and emancipate the process of abolition in the early years of emancipation. I also try to sort of uh, look briefly at, at sort of how these same ideas are carried forth in some of um, 19th century black nationalist thought um, and paying attention to the ways in which um, individuals who are uh, quite frankly writing very explicitly about conditions of blackness in the Caribbean um, see no disconnect between also advocating about their rights um, around this language of being uh, subjects of the empire and, and these ideas of Britishness and also, quite frankly, questioning um, uh, the empire and sort of uh, contesting, um, you know, colonial authority on the grounds of having these rights that they can sort of um make claims to uh, by being within the context of the empire and being connected to this sense of, of subjecthood. And then, um, you know, the other sort of piece that I try to do in that chapter is to kind of uh, pay attention to kind of sort of the everyday vernaculars of um, this belonging and these notions of what will sort of um, become more uh, clear as, as notions of belonging and citizenship and, and sort of um, uh, the claiming of rights even um, through uh, ritualistic, ritualistic practices like a, around mourning uh, Queen Victoria or Empire Day and sort of really um, trying to sort of think about the ways in which, um, you know, people sort of selected um, that that uh, kind of culture of empire uh, to make political claims, um, even in the Caribbean. And these are the same types of, of things that you'll see happen uh, in in the imperial metropolis in the post World War II period, so I really wanted to to sort of connect um, um, this history of claim making to um, to the Caribbean and really try to see uh, some of the Caribbean angles of um, of of Black Britishness even before it's called that um, mm-hmm. uh, more clearly um, in in the post World War II period or in in the latter half of the twentieth century. Right. And I think there's um, a particularly interesting way that um, these claims of of belonging are sort of mobilized against colonial authorities and to some degree uh, the imperial authorities in the form of, say, the colonial office or whatnot, but that um, the queen or the monarchy sort of remains this sort of specter of pure liberalism and pure benevolence. And I think uh, as we move into some of the later chapters, that idea that... Um, British imperialism or Britishness is inherently good and inherently anti-racist. We will come back to uh, to that uh, to that later. Um, so, if we move into chapter two, um, we have a sense that um, from the post-emancipation period onward, um, Afro-Caribbeans have been uh, mobilizing the uh, the language of belonging um, in certain ways, um, and. This, uh, I, how do I want to phrase this? Um, 
it basically moves into higher gear, I think, with the 1948 British Nationality Act that confers a new set of uh, of rights um, that seems to transform subjecthood into citizenship. Um, can you talk to us about the 1948 British National- Nationality Act and why it was so important for your work? Well, I mean, um, you know, the, the British Nationality Act of 1948 um, is important because in some ways it really um, introduces, formally introduces this language of citizenship. And, and as your question uh, quite rightly notes, in, in some ways it, it becomes a way to talk about what has been this kind of imperial subjecthood, um, but in these terms of, of citizenship, um, and in particular Commonwealth citizenship, um, which then opens um, this new category of, of British citizenship, British citizenship or citizenship uh, of the United Kingdom and colonies. But what's interesting about, um, I think, the British Nationality Act, it, it is um really a response in some ways to, in many ways, rather, to uh, Dominion nationalism, in particular, uh, shifting policies, nationality policies, um, in particular, the, a, a new development in terms of Canadian nationality policy um, that happens in 1946. And it's really a response to, to the ways in which um, nations within uh, the Commonwealth are now beginning to sort of assert their sense of nationality outside of sort of the dominant um, the dominant notion of subjecthood. And so the Canadian nationality policy sort of reverses the relationship formally between subjecthood and, and local nationality by sort of saying one becomes a British subject or Commonwealth citizen by way of first being a Canadian national. Whereas before, um, you know, the, the assumption would have been that everyone in the Commonwealth or everyone um, uh, within that would have automatically sort of been um, British subjecthood would have been available regardless, but but it's the local nationality that then takes precedent over um, one's relationship to the empire or the empire commonwealth. And so it's precisely in terms of the ways in which the dominions are now um, defining new ways of marking their local nationalities within the context of commonwealth that you then see the UK itself have to sort of um, rethink its own notions about local citizenship. Uh, status. And so, again, you have this category of um, uh, citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies, which really essentially creates a, citizen, a, a local citizenship status that is actually shared between um, metropole and colony at this particular moment. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a really significant act in terms of shifting the political lexicon around um, uh, around sort of formal citizenship and its its um, its meaning within the context of the British Empire and Commonwealth. But also at the same time, in Chapter Two, I also want to also you know really show that um, even though this is the 1948 is when we see it um, enter into official political discourse, um, this has been a vernacular discourse that that um, people within the empire have well understood themselves and made claims through well before um, it becomes this, this type of formal language um, by 1948. Now, did, did um, white Britons understand what the, the 1948 Nationality Act uh, entailed or what it meant for the rights of, uh, of migrants, uh, of, of colonial migrants to be there? Well, 
I think, I mean, part of the way that I, you know, approach it in the book is sort of looking at the ways and looking at the parliamentary debate in particular. And so my conversation around um, how it was interpreted, particularly among white Britons and the metropole is kind of limited to under this, this understanding of how policymakers were talking about the implications of this policy. And they definitely were thinking about it um, within the context of, um, it being a type of nationality policy and not necessarily a nationality policy that was going to have implications as they're related to migration. Um, and so, um, you know, the debate in Parliament about uh, about, you know, the British Nationality Act in particular is all about um, this debate about sort of uh, creating these uh, these types of hierarchies in terms of how um the metropole was going to regard these different uh, these different communities within the Commonwealth, like whether or not uh, someone from Jamaica was going to, in fact, have a different uh, relationship to Britain um, than someone from one of the dominions from from uh, from from Australia. So there was all this debate, um, this very racially coded debate about sort of the hierarchies of belonging within the context of the Empire and Commonwealth, and there was very little. Uh, interestingly, there, there's very little consideration of, of the ways in which um, nationality policy um, was going to function as a type of um, was going to really continue to function as a type of of migration policy. And so it's, it's interesting that the debate is all about sort of these questions around race and race and nationality in terms of its passage in parliament and the debates about um, its significance there. But it, it ends up um, having much more significance in terms of what it allows in terms of, of migration policy. And it's not necessarily a shift. There's always had always been uh, throughout the 20th century, um, you know, rights of migration um, in terms of, of imperial subjects throughout the empire in the 20th century. Now, however, I do talk about, um, you know, there were definitely moments where, um, you know, there, there were ways in which um, um there were policies put in place trying to sort of limit in particular non-white migration from the empire. But this right of migration to uh, to Britain had always been there. But that was the piece of the uh, 1948 um, nationality policy that actually becomes um, most important in terms of the politics of race and migration. Right. So in the wake of uh, the 1948 uh, British Nationality Act, uh, we have, of course, the Empire Windrush. Um, and then, as I understand it, there's actually a bit of a lull in between the Empire Windrush and the sort of large waves of Caribbean migration um, that really are driven by a piece of legislation in the U.S., the McCarran-Walter Act. Um, and uh, briefly, the McCarran-Walter Act uh, limits the amount of uh, Caribbean migration into the U.S., uh, which basically forces anybody who wants to migrate. Uh, the U.K. is now the obvious uh, place. Um, so by the mid-1950s, we're talking about a fair number of uh, Caribbean migrants who are moving to uh, to the U.K., who are settling there. Um, can you talk to us about their, their early experiences, um, especially the ways that they try to present themselves as, uh, as citizens? Well, I mean, I definitely, it's, it's, uh, I think you're absolutely right in terms of um, it's, it's really the mid 1950s that you really begin to see, um, you know, uh, more significant numbers of Afro-Caribbean migrants. And, and so that's the, one of the other, it sort of leads back to your other question. One of the other issues with uh, the Empire Windrush is it, it wasn't even that this was the moment, even if you were going to make it a type of, 
uh, moment demographically. It's not that right. like, there's the wind rush and then, you know, year by year that we, we see this incremental increase um, in the numbers of Afro-Caribbean migrants that are coming to the UK. So it's definitely uh, the mid-1950s. And essentially, um, you know, in those uh, in those early years of uh, of um, of migration, the settlement experiences, I mean, uh, the, I, th- I think probably the, the two is, two biggest issues are issues of employment and issues of housing right. um, that, that sort of become part of or mark kind of the everyday uh, politics of settlement. Um, and, and that are these very sort of racialized um, politics of settlement or mark the racialized politics of settlement there. Um, one of the interesting things to note is that, um, you know, in addition to, um, the U.S. becoming this place that is no longer as easily navigable in terms of border crossing, um, but also the U.K. becomes, you know, very, uh, you know, a, a very um, a place that that one could think about migrating, particularly because um, there is there are these post-war labor shortages that are that are very much advertised, and 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 there there's a reality of a post-war. Uh, post-war labor shortage, particularly beginning in the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s. Um, but it's it's a particular kind of labor shortage that's sort of limited um, to um, to uh, sort of the, the lower paying segments of, of the economy, very entry level positions. And so these are going to be the positions where there really are, are going to be um, more job openings and there, there are going to be more opportunities um, for uh, Afro-Caribbean migrants to, to sort of find a place in the labor market, despite the fact that that people might be migrating with more credentials, more um, experience, more education to sort of place them in a different um, bracket in the labor market. They're going to find um, in particular uh, that they're going to uh, that more jobs, the, the availability, the ability to find work is going to be at the the lower rung of the labor market. And then also the issue of housing is definitely going to be something that's going to mark um, the experience of settlement. Um, And that's, it has to sort of be their difficulties in terms of finding housing has to be read within the backdrop of sort of a larger post-war housing shortage. Um, You know, you're still, you know, less than a decade out of the end of World War II. And so um, Britain as a whole domestically is is still very much in the process of rebuilding the nation quite literally. Um, and so this creates a number of um, issues as it relates to, to housing for, uh, for Afro-Caribbean migrants. And then, um, you know, overall, I think um, just there's sort of the, the issues of settlement also have to sort of be seen in relation to um, the, the earliest years of just the welfare state and sort of, um, you know, sort of finding your way within um, the, the welfare state in and of itself is sort of um, is sort of in the making at this particular moment. So right. these these issues are definitely being um being navigated within within the backdrop of that. And, and in some ways, I think you can one can think about, um, you know, the issue of the welfare state being sort of this kind of looming thing that that people are, are def- their their access to the resources of of the welfare state and their stake in society is also being uh, is part of the ways in which people, um, you know, I think is, is probably impacting the, the politics that are being shaped in this moment. Um, can you talk about the photographs? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I love those. I love those. <laughs> that was, um, you know, 
they definitely sort of made this project come alive for me. Um, you know, really, uh, you know, I, I, there was a collection of photographs and I wanted to include more, but, um, there were, uh, permission issues and all sorts of, right. of things that sort of got in the way of that. But, um, some of the, the first photographs that I came across that were just sort of, you know, every, you know, depictions of everyday life, family photographs came from the Harry Jacobs collection out of um, the Lambeth libraries. And Harry Jacobs was a Jewish photographer um, that was sort of the person to go to um, in um, Brixton. He actually sort of made um, many of the new newly settled uh, Afro-Caribbean communities in that area his base, that's that's where he sort of marketed to and sort of was his bread and butter um, in the 1950s and 1960s. And he um, donated his collections um, to the Lambeth archives. And, and he really has a very um, amazing collection of photographs of, of people um, and, and their family photographs. And in particular, I think the family photographs are interesting um, to think about, particularly when juxtaposed with the ways in which images worked in the media to sort of create this narrative around the color problem of right. Afro-Caribbean migrants. And these these family photographs in particular do, I think, a very significant political work um, in terms of, of really uh, challenging that narrative and contesting that narrative and reframing images of Afro-Caribbean migrants within the context of family that challenge the narrative of, of a color problem that's masculine and, and sort of embodied by the presence of single black men who are going to sort of create this sexual threat, who are going to sort of be um, these sort of transient, transient individuals who are not going to sort of be able to settle in any kind of respectable fashion. And these images, quite frankly, um, disrupt all of those sort of popular um, conceptions. And I, so in, in my view, and, and part of the, the reason why I present them in the book is because I do think they are very much part of an everyday type of politics of citizenship, a politics of belonging, a politics of of representation um, in terms of um, showing how people wanted to be seen and how people um, wanted to or imagine um, their aspirations, um, you know, in British society and their sense of actually being settled. Um, in Britain. And so the photographs are just important for all sorts of, of reasons. Photographs, you know, um, remind us again that these are migrating individuals. These are the types of, of, um, of artifacts that are going to connect them to the Caribbean and connect them to other parts of, of Caribbean diasporas um, in different parts of the world. So these photographs are, are very uh, were very important to the project and a, a very important window for me and for my view into to having a sense of how people saw themselves. Right. And wanted to. Uh, and as I said at the top, uh, this uh, particular work is, is particularly personal to me. Uh, I have some of these photographs uh, lurking in <laughs> lurking in my family. I don't think it's by the same uh, photographer, although I certainly will now check. Um, because my, uh, my family was basically based in North London, um, but certainly functioning in very similar ways of showing, uh, domestic happiness, marriage, um, and basically again, completely disrupting this idea, um, that, that these migrants are mainly black transient men who are going to be a threat. Um, so I particularly love that section one to make sure that we, that we talked about it. Um, so from here forward, the, the remaining four chapters, they're basically sort of uh, all focusing on a series of events. Um, and uh, we can start with the first one, which is the famous uh, 1958 Notting Hill riot. 
Um, and in particular, you are using these riots to talk about a concept that I really love in the book, which is the mystique of black anti-racism. Um, please explain the mystique of black anti-racism. Uh, the mystique of British anti-racism. Oh, sorry. Yes. The mystique of British. <laughs> that is a critical clarification. Um, the mystique of British anti-racism. Mm-hmm. So this was a term for me that um, was my way of trying to capture um, this sense and try to capture it and then work around it. Um, this sense of, 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 representations of Britishness and British nationality, both domestically and also um, in the world. Um, and, and sort of what I settle on in terms of this notion of, of a mystique of British anti-racism, particularly in the post-war War II period, is the ways in which um, it sort of congeals around um, um really historic uh, post-abolitionist narratives of Britain as being um, benevolent, Britain as being tolerant, um, Britain as being uh, anti-racist, particularly in relation to uh, the U.S. and and South Africa in the post-World War II period, Britain being this place that is the mother country um, of, of, a, of a type of multiracial commonwealth. And that's where the 1948 um, British Nationality Act is one of those, those policies that kind of allows you to t- tout this sense that, you know, commonwealth citizenship is sort of bringing, you know, all of these races and nations and these different um, diverse populations of the empire under the banner of Commonwealth citizenship and this idea of Britishness. And, you know, part of what I I wanted to do with the mystique of British anti-racism is to both market, but also think about um, how it um, elides a way of of even sort of thinking about the history of, of race politics in the UK and more precisely histories of racism in the UK. Um, but also sort of thinking about how it is something that is both touted in terms of what the nation is, but it's also something that I think Black activists on the ground summon the nation to be um, and, and really sort of, um, you know, they are also saying, you know, at the same time that the nation, they're very, you know, I think some of the activists that I'm concerned with are very aware of the way in which the nation wants to represent itself in these very sort of liberal terms as anti-racist, as multiracial, as um, sort of promoting these ideas of racial demo- uh, democracy, particularly uh, after having sort of fought a war in the name of some of these these very same values. And so um, at the same time that I think um, the, the the news about race riots sort of calls into question this image of, of Britain as sort of this liberal, tolerant, anti-racist nation, it also is is the very thing that, that Black activists sort of call the nation to be and sort of use it as a way to sort of call the nation out in terms of, of the, 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 the racial conditions that, that Black people are facing on the streets. Um, during the same particular period. So, you know, part of, of what I wanted to do was to really sort of think about um, that idea of Britain as a nation um, historically, but also how it works within the context of race politics in that post-World War II period. Uh, and you also uh, highlight the way that um, in response to the riots, 
um, the British government, let's say, um, and certainly uh, please clarify, uh, please uh, be more specific if, if necessary. Um, we're also trying to preserve that mystique. So their response to, if not the riots, certainly the international outcry um, about the riots um, shows them really concerned about preserving this image. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I think, um, you know, and, and definitely sort of trying to explain the news of race riots and the ways that it's circulating in, internationally was very interesting um, to see in like the, the uh, different segments of government, particularly like the Commonwealth Relations Office and the Colonial Office, um, sort of summoning their diplomats in different regions of the world to try to sort of manage the image of the nation that's being reported in the press around the world. And you sort of um, definitely see that in some of the diplomatic correspondence is coming out of um out of those different branches of government. And part of, of the narrative that um, is actually fed to the diplomats, which the diplomats are in theory, have this responsibility of trying to sort of influence uh, international press opinion about in, in their different uh, local outposts, is creating this narrative about sort of the problem of um, an increasing West Indian migrant population, but also um, sort of creating a type of blame for, um, you know, this, this, this outburst of, of racial violence in um, British cities like London and like Nottingham and sort of creating this blame that centers on um, the character of, of the Teddy boy, who is this uh, individual who sort of represents a kind of deviant uh, uh, youth a working class masculinity um, that is sort of a product of a particular region, a specific area, a specific kind of working class urban uh, depraved life. And so that's, um, th- those are kind of the two images that kind of, um, or two narratives that kind of come out of how um, the, how you see diplomats sort of beginning to try to, uh, or how do you see uh, different segments of the British government in terms of how they're trying to um, communicate a message about the meaning of these, these race, uh, these episodes of racial violence that centers upon the problem of Caribbean migration. And maybe that this is, can be something that can be solved because, you know, if we can just sort of think about border control, but also you should know that this is not something that's representative of the nation, but it's sort of this very, um, you know, problematic uh, deviant sector of society. And so um, those are, are part of the ways in which um, there's an effort to try to, uh, to really, what I argue, preserve this kind of mystique, because if you can make it all about the problem of the present, of um, single black men from the Caribbean who sort of are, you know, represent, um, you know, a type of, of problem population. And then you can make um, the reaction to that migration, this sort of very uh, deviant outcast segment of society, you can still, you know, present this narrative that this is not something that is is representative of the values of the nation um, as a whole. And so part of what I want to do, I, I try to do in that chapter is to sort of show how um, even, you know, at the level of the state, you see these, these conversations, you actually see um, the narrative being created around, um, you know, restoring law and order from these deviant individuals who sort of gotten out of hand. That becomes the narrative that's coming uh, from the prime minister and also being circulated among the diplomats internationally, but also you sort of see that in, you know, everyday press reporting, that narrative gets sort of taken up over and over again, that this violence can sort of be explained as a product of, um, you know, increased and increasing black migration or the increasing an increasing black population in in London and Nottingham. And also um, that it's uh, the product of, um, 
these activities of kind of a lunatic fringe or these um, sort of uh, teddy boy rowdies. Right, right. And we move from the riots to yet another. I mean, this idea, this this, this racial violence continues. Um, and in chapter four, you're focusing on the uh, uh, murder of uh, Kelso Cochran um, and the way that his death sort of sparks, uh, if not a new form, a, a more vigorous form of uh, black advocacy, um, one that parallels or one that draws attention to the parallel between uh, Jim Crow violence um, and what's happening in Britain. Um, so can you talk about this in particular? Uh, I think now would be a good time to talk about Claudia Jones as well. Um, yeah, Kelso Cochrane, and I, I definitely think you, you phrase it correctly, is the murder of Kelso Cochrane is not necessarily to sort of say that there was no political activity um, uh, at all to speak of in the, in the 1950s, but it's definitely a moment where you definitely see more visible uh, black political activity um, in regards to protest around his murder and really politicizing his murder as uh, something that is um, representative of a larger trend of violence against people of African descent and in particular, largely Afro-Caribbean migrant population. And, Kels- uh, and, and Claudia Jones in particular is one of the key figures that's um, a part of the organizing um, that happens in the aftermath of his murder. She's actually um, in, in the run up in the year before the murder in the year, the time between the news of, of race riots in, in Notting Hill and Kelso Cochrane's death. Um, Claudia Jones, uh, during that same period of time, founds uh, the West Indian Gazette newspaper, which is is really going to be sort of a centerpiece of um, of an emerging black British political culture in the 1950s and early 1960s. Um, She's also involved in a number of grassroots organizations, some of which um, she's involved with with uh, Amy Ashwood Garvey. Those two kind of overlap a lot in terms of some of the, the local organizations that they're involved in in the late 1950s and 1960s. But those, um, you know, uh, Claudia Jones and her activism in organizations like the Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the Interracial Friendship Coordinating Council are going to be some of the key organizations that get involved in, um, you know, the funding, the legal defense of those who are involved in the violence in Nottingham and in Notting Hill, and also organizing um, the burial plans and arranging for a public memorial uh, service for um, for Kelso Cochrane. And she is an individual that that definitely um, is sort of uh, at the core, linking a number of different um, different organizations that are involved in in domestic politics, but also um, making the link between domestic politics and the domestic race politics in the UK and connections between uh, decolonization and and efforts to sort of um, support the West Indies Federation, which is something that's on the table at the time, and also making connections between um, apartheid in in South Africa and, um, you know, Afro-Asian solidarities, um, around the oppression of, of colonial um, colonial subjects um, more globally. So Claudia Jones is someone who who really helps to make the link in really concrete and um, specific ways between um, local politics on the ground involving Afro-Caribbean migrants and, and black British communities and really making those links between global and diasporic race politics. Um, and you, you note in this chapter, and I think this is a good way to segue into the final section of the book, um, that part of this activism around uh, Kelso uh, Cochrane is 
insisting that uh, that Black Britons are citizens, um, subjects uh, slash citizens, and that they are not immigrants. Um, and we see when we move into uh, chapters five and six, which talk about two pieces of legislation, um, that this distinction between immigrants and citizens comes to the fore in the in the form of legislation. So let's take um, the first, uh, what's in chapter five, the 1962 Commonwealth Immigration Act. Um, this is another site of activism, as you point out. Uh, why is this act challenged so vigorously? Um, well, part of, and, and again, many of the coalitions that form in protest to the Commonwealth Immigration Act or what becomes the Commonwealth Immigration Act of 1962 are organizations that um, come out of uh, response to the murder of Kelso Cochrane. So some of those key coalitions are formed in that moment. But the Commonwealth Immigration Act of 1962 is um, an act that essentially um, on, on its face is all about regulating uh, migration from the Commonwealth uh, to the UK um, on the grounds of one's relationship to the labor market. Um, but at the end of the day, um, migrants like, uh, you know, folks like Claudia Jones and activists who are have take very serious issue with the Commonwealth Immigration Act, um, look at it as a type of policy that's going to disproportionately um, uh, affect and disproportionately deny the right to migrate uh, to Britain uh, to a largely non-white Commonwealth uh, community. And at that time, still um, at the time the act is passed, um, is is, predom- is is dominated by uh, Afro-Caribbean migrants. And so Claudia Jones in particular um, is, is someone who um, takes to task both the way in which um, the, the implications of the Commonwealth Immigration Act of 1962 um, sort of strip away a sort of foundational right of citizenship, that being that right to migrate to the UK as part of um, being a citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies and being a Commonwealth citizen under the terms of the British Nationality Act. So it strips um, and makes distinctions between those who are resident in the metropole and those who are um, in the, the Commonwealth and colonies. But also one of the interesting arguments that Claudia Jones makes, which I think is very much informed by her experience being an immigrant in the context of the United States and being a deportable subject, as Carol Boyce Davies has talked about. She talks about what this will, this immigration policy um, that has these nationality implications, but what this immigration policy will mean, particularly even for those individuals who have crossed the borders, who are citizens in the context of the metropole. And I think, um, you know, she is one of those individuals that makes the most pointed critique for what the ways in which um the creation of a legal category of immigrant in the sense that, you know, immigrant being a type of person who is deportable, a citizen, that's one of the things that marks an immigrant from a citizen in that, you know, a citizen can't be uh, can't be deported in the same way that an immigrant essentially can. But in creating this idea of legally creating an apparatus for the ways in which Commonwealth uh, citizens can now be immigrants and can be these deportable subjects that it's going to uh, infringe upon the citizenship rights of those who are potentially going to migrate, but also those who are already uh, in the UK. And she makes, um, you know, one of the, the key arguments that she makes in terms of her organizing and, and one of the, the points that the um, one of the organizations that she's involved with that's protesting this act is they look at one of the subsections that um, basically empowers um, 
immigration officials to question um, and surveil the properties of uh, landlords who may be uh, renting to and, and creates penalties for those who are found guilty of renting property to someone who has violated uh, the provisions of the Commonwealth Immigration Act. And so she she harps on that to sort of talk about the ways in which that creates these conditions for surveillance, uh, disincentivizes already dire uh, accommodation, uh, it disincentivizes people from migrating, from uh, renting to people who could be under that sort of racialized category mm-hmm. of immigrant. And so, um, you know, she really is someone who um, organizes and really articulates this vision of, of what this uh, legal apparatus for creating uh, the category of immigrant um, means for both those who want to cross the borders, but also want to um, actually reside and remain as citizens and and continue to make claims of belonging um, who are already resident in the UK. So if I could make a, uh, or just, just clarify something, uh, both for my purposes and listeners' purposes, um, the Commonwealth Immigration Act does not formally strip Commonwealth subjects of citizenship. Is that correct? So, so no, I mean, it, it does not, it, it, it strips them of their right to migrate on the basis of being Commonwealth citizens alone. Okay. So it strips them of British citizenship, but continues to have, uh, continues to confer a Commonwealth citizenship that basically is meaningless for these purposes. Well, the British citizenship and the Commonwealth citizenship are still going to be there. But in practice, it's still going to regulate who can access the rights attached to those uh, those two categories of citizenship, which are essentially one and the same Mm -hmm. for uh, for those who are going to be migrating from the colonies and and different parts, different parts of the 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 Commonwealth. So it's it's not that it it sort of strips in name their citizenship, but the ability to sort of exercise certain rights. Um, as it is, it, as it is attached to that citizenship, becomes conditioned upon uh, where you are living in the Commonwealth, right. um, and and and, in, in, and essentially, I think the other thing, the disenfranchising parts of that is it does create conditions for deportability yes. for people who have not been resident in the UK for five years or more. Okay. Okay. And that, I mean, that's actually really fascinating because it also suggests that there's now a creation of a British citizenship that does not give you the right to live in Britain. Yes. Okay. It does not give you the remi- right to remain without condition. So like if you right. were to, yeah, yeah. If you were to create a, uh, you know, commit a crime or something, you know, you could be deported. Okay. Um, I think that's, that's sort of the big, one of the big pieces. And I just want, we, we won't go into it, but I do want to flag for listeners, the very fascinating case of Carmen Bryan, who really illustrates again, this, um, this, what, what now has become a possibility to deport people who were previously citizens without, who could not be uh, deported. Cause as you note, uh, citizenship generally means that one cannot be uh, deported. Um, so we have this piece of legislation, 1962 Commonwealth Immigration Act, which was a piece of legislation, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that was a, uh, from the Conservative Party? Yes. Okay. Uh, and Labor is sort of questioning it, uh, that you note that they are in opposition to it. Uh, but by the time we get to 1965, with the Race Relations Act, the subject of Chapter 6, um, Labor is in power. Um, they have basically 
taken the conservative position on immigration. They're happy to continue those immigration uh, controls um, and much more stringent uh, uh, immigration controls. Um, And yet to sort of save face in certain ways, um, they finally admit that there is a race relations problem in Britain, and they do so through uh, the putting forth of a race relations act. Uh, Can you talk to us um, about what the race relations act was supposed to do? Um, And then once again, the uh, outpouring of black activism against it. Um, So part, I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of, uh, you know, looking at 1962 being this pivotal policy moment where you have uh, the conservative party in in power. Um, And you do have, you know, uh, you know, I try to talk about in the book uh, that there is definitely the Labor Party. There's some some, some staunch Labor Party leaders who express opposition to this party and express it on the grounds of of, um, the racial politics of of this um, of the policy in particular. One of the things that gets harped on by members of the Labor Party who speak out in opposition is the fact that um, this policy is not going to um, apply to uh, uh, Irish uh, migrants from from you know it's going to apply to a particular part of the Commonwealth and so um, you know that's uh, one of the interesting pieces that comes out of Labor Party opposition um, and the ways that they sort of flag it as this very sort of racialized policy that's specifically meant to target non-white uh, Commonwealth immigrants. Okay, the Commonwealth Immigration Act of 1962 and in particular uh, this issue of the ways in which the Labor Party, um, members of the Labor Party, very prominent members of the Labor Party, Hugh Gatesgill, who's the leader of, of the later Labor Party um, at the time that the act is passed, do, um, uh, you know, object and oppose, um, speak out and object and oppose this policy on the grounds that in particular doesn't apply to uh, Irish migrants. And in particular that they use that as a case to talk about the ways in which this is meant to um to strip uh, migration rights from a particular segment of the Commonwealth, particularly non-white uh, Commonwealth migrants. But then the other piece that's sort of interesting in terms of how the Commonwealth Immigration Act uh, ends up working is that in terms of uh, the deportations, it's actually Irish migrants who are deported. Uh, the highest numbers of, of deportations that happen in Jordan and Balkan uh, has a great article that that sort of outlines um, the the other half of, of the restrictions that come out of, of that particular policy and the racial politics around that and how Irish migrants become um, become sort of the highest numbers of deportees under that that policy. But by 1965, you definitely have a labor party um, that has, um, you know, changed in some ways. Hugh Gates Gill actually uh, dies. And so, um, you know, there there is a, just a different labor party that's actually in power and they have a different relationship to um, to the politics of, of of race and also the politics of race as it is defined through these questions around migration and immigration policy. And by 1965, um, I think you you definitely see a labor party uh, who is trying to um, to sort of neutralize the connections between race and immigration. Uh, policy by by just sort of um, you know really uh, in some ways embracing that 1962 has happened. This policy has been in effect, and in, in some ways part of the conditions of moving in some ways 
being seen as moving forward on these questions around race relations by embracing the, the race relations policy, it's also tethered to really a tightening of of, uh, of immigration policy. And one of the things that I think is important to note um, about understanding the Labor Party's position is that uh, those voices who were dissenting to the Commonwealth Immigration Act and making that dissent based on uh, the ways in which this was going to be a racialized racialized policy of disenfranchisement were actually very successful in the sense that they actually create a narrative whereby race and immigration are are always linked moving forward. So by the time you get to a labor party in 1965, they understand that that is in power in 1965, this sort of public and popular discourse around race and immigration is very much, um, very much cemented. So they definitely um, by 1965 with the race relations act, in some ways uh, it can be seen as, as part of the labor party um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, not taking, you know, not trying to sort of challenge uh, the the restrictions on Commonwealth immigration and trying to sort of turn a corner on on race politics by in by looking at anti discrimination policy and part of what that 1965 Race Relations Act does. Um, it's very uh, tepid in the sense that um, it it sort of outlaws discrimination in in public places, but it's very uh, non-specific, um, very non-committal, um, and it also does, um, to some extent, regulate uh, regulate language, in, incendiatory language um, that would be uh, racially coded incendiatory uh, incendiary language. But it's very, very tepid and does not address, um, particularly for some of the uh, the activists that sort of come out against. Um, it's, it's lack of real teeth and, and, uh, uh, it, it really uh, does not regulate, uh, anti or create, uh, anti-discrimination, uh, legislation, particularly in areas, um, where, uh, non-white migrants are experiencing, uh, some of the, the most, uh, virulent forms of everyday discrimination, particularly as it relates to housing and employment. And so that's, um, part of the reason why you see an immediate um, response from organizations like the Campaign Against Racial Discrimination uh, to try to really uh, give give uh, some teeth to anti-discrimination, national anti-discrimination policy in the UK. So the Campaign Against uh, Racial Discrimination, uh, otherwise known as CARD, um, this is the sort of final group that you, that you focus on. Um, and briefly, um, you note that they are sort of riven by internal tensions um, and particularly internal tensions over uh, exactly what strategy they should be using. Um, and yet I think you still are su- suggesting that they are successful. Can you um, explain how they're successful um, in certain ways, even though they disband relatively quickly? Well, I think one of the, to me, one of the, um, one of the legacies of CARD is that they are on the fore of really trying to make an empirical case uh, for anti-discrimination policy um, in the mid-1960s. And there are other, you know, you, there are definitely um, other organizations that sort of, um, you know, become a part of this kind of race relations policy apparatus that's trying to sort of document uh, the nature of dis- racial discrimination and how it, the different arenas that it takes place in British society. But in some ways, CARD is really, um, I would argue, is, is really at the fore of that, even though in terms of um, 
the number of cases that they're docu- they're documenting their other um, agencies um, that that eventually go on to to produce much larger studies. But in terms of presenting some of that early evidence to the race relations board, which is actually another outcome of that first. Uh, race Relations Act that's passed in 1965. There's an establishment of a race relations board that's supposed to be this national mediating body to sort of be uh, this clearinghouse for hearing uh, discrimination complaints. But again, the part of the problem, the early problem with the race relations board is that their purview is very limited in scope. They cannot hear these discrimination uh, and sort of mediate discrimination cases in many of the areas that um, that people are experiencing racial discrimination um, on an everyday basis in the largest, um, in the largest numbers. And so, like I said, card really, uh, to me, I think they do have an important legacy in terms of, um, really, uh, sort of adopting some of the strategies of civil rights organizations in the United States to really, uh, test policy and to really show the limits of policy by making an empirical case that discrimination is experienced in all of these different types of arenas, um, and in all of these different ways. And so really trying to, um, to speak back to policymakers, um, by making that empirical case is something that I think is really important about, um, about Cardin. And they get a lot of media attention for sort of being that um, that national advocacy organization that is really uh, comprised or representative of, of, in particular, Black and Asian uh, migrant communities in the in, in that particular era. Even if you know internally they, they have a lot of a lot going on, <laughs> um, <laughs> they definitely are able to create a, a national media profile that gives them uh, the type of legs uh, to get uh, get recognition um, in different um, different. Uh, official policy arenas there. So I think that they're, they're really important, even though they are, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, try to, I think, show that they're, they're kind of the internal divisions between how their strategies, but also, um, the ways in which, um, you know, the constituencies in which they're going to represent, um, you know, they're, they're very much, uh, even from their very inception sort of have a lot of debate about that, which I think, um, prohibits the organization from, from being able to, to sustain itself. Right. So um, by way of, of summing up, uh, where do you think this all leaves us or what would you want the main takeaway uh, for people to be uh, after they finished uh, after they finished reading the work? Well, um, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think at the end of the day, I really want to um, to have presented a story where we really see. Um, you know, Afro-Caribbean migrants in particular, but people of African descent um, making claims about black Britishness and using that as a way to talk back to the state, to talk to talk back to the state, to make claims about rights, um, to demand um, to demand rights, to demand inclusion, both, um, you know, on the scale of the everyday, but also in relation to um, to to issues around settlement, whether it's housing, whether it's employment, um, whether it's uh, having a sense of bodily security. Um, one of the issues that that I think what is really important about CARD um, is that um, they are part of one of the grassroots organizations in the 1960s that that really advances a conversation about policing um, that becomes a really important um, uh, narrative, um, particularly in uh, the 1970s and 1980s in terms of Black Britons and their um, relationship to the state and the ways in which um, the state 
becomes um, complicit in in the process by which um, they're deprived of their citizenship rights. And so part of what I want to do in this book is to really show um, that there is a much longer historical narrative for for understanding um, many of these contemporary issues around uh, Black Britons and their relationship to the state. Well, thank you so much uh, for uh, for uh, talking with us today. The traditional final last question is, um, what are you working on now? Now that you have pr- uh, produced this amazing book, what are you working on now? Well, I am starting a project that has kind of uh, been sort of an outgrowth of... Um, outgrowth of, of this project. I'm looking at the case uh, of the um, death of a, of a Nigerian vagrant by the name of David Alawali, whose uh, body is pulled from the River Air in Leeds in 1969. And it is actually um, uh, his case um, is actually the first case where two police officers are actually convicted. They receive very short terms of imprisonment, but they're convicted of um, assault. Um, and actually they're tried initially for um, manslaughter. So they're actually tried for um, for his death. But it's really one of the first cases where you begin to see um, a state agent in the form of a police officer actually be uh, convicted of a crime um, that is happening against a black person in custody. And so um, there, there are a number of um, organizations, particularly the Institute of Race Relations, um, which, again, has its, a, a very interesting post-war uh, history that extends from uh, the period that I look at in the book um, up through um, up through the present. That's sort of been tracking these instances of, of what they term black deaths in custody. But I'm trying to sort of uh, look at look at his case and look at the ways in which he gives us a, a completely different um, vantage point to kind of think about uh, histories of contemporary black Britain. He's uh, Nigerian. He arrives as a stowaway. So he in 1949. So, you know, in this, you know, a year after Kitchener arrives to much fanfare and we have this very um uh, different story around Afro-Caribbean migration. He immediately goes to prison um, uh, when he arrives in the UK and sort of, um, you know, has a, a very different uh, narrative, presents a very different narrative for unraveling uh, some of the experiences of, of people of African descent in the UK in the post-World War II period. So I'm kind of following his case and, um, and trying to sort of think about what it uh, tells us about uh, state-sanctioned violence against um, against Black Britons, particularly um, in the era before we get policing the crisis. So uh, again, trying to to, to really historicize um, some of what gets more traction um, uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, I, that could not be more timely uh, given the particular moment that we're in. Um, so we all look forward to uh, to reading that work. Um, so, Kanata, uh, I'd like to thank you again for uh, taking uh, the time to speak with us today. Um, and uh, we are are so excited about the book. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, listeners uh, take the time to read it as well. So thanks again. Uh, and bye. You've been listening to New Books in British Studies. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.